0: For this morning's sermon, we're looking at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Let us pray before we begin. Father, we're grateful and thankful for your word. We look to you to supply all that we need. Have mercy on us, pour out your spirit upon us, illumine our minds, help us to see and understand that we would know you better, know ourselves better. We ask for grace. Father, look upon us and pity us and be with us, for we ask it in Christ. Amen. Well, we're now at the turning point. This is a turning point in the story of Luke's gospel, because prior to this, we've been focusing our attention on John the Baptist and the events prior to Jesus coming to this place of ministry. And all that's taken place to prepare Jesus' way and, and John Baptist and all his, even his younger years and the stuff that we've looked at. This is the place where Jesus is baptized and he begins his ministry. And he's revealed to us as into the world as Messiah. And this morning we're going to see the significance of this baptism. Because it's significant for you here today. It's significant for all of us. It's significant not only for his own ministry and his life, but it's significant for us even in our own baptism and union with Christ as we're going to see. And as we go through this particular passage, one of the things that we we need to note as we begin to see how significant Jesus' baptism is to our baptism and to where we're at in life and what that means, means for his ministry and means for our life, We need to understand what was happening at the particular time, that moment. John the Baptist had been baptizing, and people had been coming to him in hordes. They've been repenting and baptizing. And what's happening just before he comes to the pinnacle, the apex of his ministry, is that the people are starting to wonder if he's not Messiah himself. If you look up at verse 15, just to give a little context, In verse 15, it says, as the people were in expectation. You know what that's referring to? The people are in expectation. They're expecting Messiah. It's in the air. They're in a a time of expectation. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. And what were they questioning? Whether, what does it say? He might be the Christ. So the people are in expectation, and they're wondering whether he be the Christ. And John answered them all, saying this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now that's an expression there that we're not too familiar with. How many of you are farmers, to say the least? Not many of you are farmers of this type. Because in Bible times, a threshing floor was this concrete pad where they would take the wheat that was harvested and they would grab it in bundles, especially a small operation, and pound it against this concrete pad. And what they would do is, it would separate the wheat berries would fall out, and it would the the wheat would fall out. Then they'd take the the stalk and they'd put it off to the side. But what had fallen after it had gotten hit also is there's the there's the wheat and the chaff that gets separated. And when a winnowing fork is a big fork that has big gaps in it, and they'd throw it up in the air. And what would, what would, the wind would come along and blow the chaff away. And the wheat would fall down, and so it's separating. And so John sees Jesus' ministry as a time of separating when he will take and he will gather up the chaff and it will be burned with unquenchable fire. Now, obviously, John doesn't completely get all of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't understand how it all will lay out. He knows he's Messiah and that he knows that as Messiah he is going to judge and, but John is a little bit confused about Jesus' ministry. Do you remember later on, as we're going to see, John actually is wondering, is he, are you truly the Messiah or should we expect someone else? And then Jesus goes on to quote something for John. And this is what we're going to see here. We're going to see that Jesus uh, understood, properly understood, has to be, you have to understand his baptism and what's going on at his baptism. Because even John would have been shocked and surprised at what ends up taking place here. But yet at the same time, I'm sure there's a a passage of scripture that we're going to look at that's in the back of his mind that's coming to the forefront. Because Jesus' baptism is the the beginning of his ministry. He's being anointed for his ministry from heaven. Look at verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying the heavens were opened. And obviously when the heavens are opened it's not like you see the stars, you see the heaven, the highest heaven that's not it, we're able to see with our eyes. So the visible firmament heaven like cracks open and you see the heavens opens up and the holy spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. What is happening there at this moment? Jesus is being anointed for his ministry as Messiah. And it happened in order to fulfill Isaiah 61. Now here's the passage I believe John the Baptist might have thought of when he saw the spirit descending upon him. It says, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. So the Spirit of God has come upon me. Because why? The Lord has anointed me. Do you see that? The Spirit of God comes upon him. And why? Because Because God has anointed him. And what does he anoint him to do, it says? to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Do you realize that's exactly how Jesus responded to John the Baptist when he was questioning whether or not he was Messiah? He quotes to him Isaiah 61. and Because Paul doesn't see the winnowing fork in Jesus' ministry, does he? He sees this gracious... King and Messiah healing and binding up and nurturing and caring and, and, ca- and casting out demons and releasing captives and forgiving sin. And so he's confused. He doesn't see the winnowing fork yet. But he did see the, the spirit of the Lord descending upon him. And perhaps Paul, uh, John needed to get, understand the Messiah more fully and realize that this anointing for ministry would begin with this blessing of, of all the people. So in his baptism, Jesus is not receiving, one thing we need to note here, he's not receiving the same kind of baptism, obviously, as the rest of the people are. Right? And this is why John doesn't understand why he should baptize him. Why would I, why would, why would I baptize you? And in fact, in Matthew chapter, chapter 3, that's in fact what he says. You're the one who should be baptizing me. I'm not even worthy to undo the strap of your sandals and I'm going to baptize you? And Jesus says, yes. And as we're going to see later, he says, yes. And he says, this is in order to fulfill all righteousness. But here we have to understand what's happening at the baptism when the Spirit descends upon him and you hear the voice of the Father is that Jesus is being anointed for his ministry. Everybody else coming to be baptized is, why? Why are they getting baptized? They're coming for the baptism of remission of sins. They come confessing their sins and are baptized to be cleansed, Jesus is baptized to be anointed for his ministry. Because one thing we can't also forget, it's important for us to understand that John the Baptist is a priest. He's the son of a priest, which makes him a priest, the son of Zechariah the priest. And it was a priest who would anoint the king. Whenever the king was anointed for his ministry, the priest would come along with a horn of of what? Of oil. Of oil. And he was anointed with oil. And what did that oil represent? The Spirit. That he was. it would go on his forehead and run down. That the Spirit would fill him and anoint him for his ministry. Prepare him. Consecrate him. Set him apart. But instead, we have Jesus baptized with water. And the Spirit coming down upon him in bodily form. In this likeness as a dove. Now what's, what's amazing about this is you do not see the Spirit taking form. Because you know here's the throughout in, throughout Scripture you will see that the manifestations of God, and it's, it's believed by all theologians, conservative theologians, that the manifestations is the manifestation of the Word of God, namely this eternal Son of God. It's Jesus who gets manifested. But here we have the Spirit manifested, and it says, in the likeness of a dove. Now, sometimes if you ever watch the Jesus movies, we actually see the actual dove coming down upon him. But it says, in the likeness or form of a dove. So, here's the difficulty. The Spirit cannot, we have to understand this, obviously cannot be contained in in one image like this, or even in the likeness of a dove. Obviously, the spirit, the universe cannot contain the spirit. The spirit is everywhere present. But there's a manifestation of a particular special anointing that's taking place, so he's manifested in the likeness of a dove. Now, to try to speculate as to what that was like is just beyond any scholar's ability. You'd have to be there and witness it to know how to describe that. You know, what do you... You know, in the likeness of a dove, okay, had some sense of form of a dove, but we don't know anything more than that, really. The fact that the Spirit descended out of the heavens opened, and from this opening comes down the Spirit in the likeness of a dove. We're not exactly sure. Let's just leave it at that. That's the safest thing to do, what exactly that was like. But it was in the likeness of a dove, nonetheless. And Jesus was being anointed. And the thing is, this is what's neat about God. Because even though the Spirit is powerful, incomprehensible, in the sense of not, our, our, the weakness of our flesh is that we can't see the spiritual realm. We can't see the spiritual things. We just, God has got to crack open the heavens, so to speak, and allow it, give us eyes to see. Otherwise, we can't. And then to give us a visual. How come the Spirit did not descend like fire? because actually later on that's how the spirit descends right like fires falling down upon the disciples but here the spirit is descending like a dove and what's amazing is that the dove is this picture of innocence this picture of gentleness this picture of you know harmless as a dove right so the spirit of the living god the one who creates all that is existent in the universe the power of the spirit is unknowable it's it's un Approachable. The power is, is beyond measure. Limitless power with the Spirit, and yet, how is the Spirit manifested? The likeness of a dove. What does it say about our God, who cometh in, in the humility of a man, and now the Spirit descending in the likeness of a dove? It's profound. Our God is this incredibly gracious and kind God that in our weakness, he knows that we're flesh. He knows that we can't comprehend all these things. And so he gives us pictures. He gives us tangibles, things that we can comprehend. We can comprehend a dove and what that symbolizes. And so that's what he gives in in this particular case. We see the humility and we see the tenderness of our God. This anointing also clearly shows us the triune nature of our God. And I'll quickly, this is somewhat of a side note, but I think it's important. What we see here in this anointing is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The Son is being baptized, and at that time, the Spirit comes upon him in the likeness of a dove, and the Father speaks from the heaven and says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We have three distinct persons being represented simultaneously at the same time, and it's, we don't find this anywhere else in Scripture where all three are showing up at the same time. It's a pretty powerful moment, especially when it comes to understanding who our God is, because there have been a fair amount of heresies throughout the centuries, in particular in who, as to who God is. And one of the heresies that has been refuted long time ago is modalism. And modalism stated that there is only one God who presents himself in three, at three different modes. It's not Trinitarian, where we have one God who's three persons, which is different. So three different modes. And if you're familiar with this at all, it, the way it's understood is that he's either the father or the Son, or the Holy Spirit, but he's not three at one. He's in different modes. So when the Father's needed, he's a Father. When the Son's needed, he's a Son. When the Spirit's needed, he's a Spirit. One God, three modes. Not one God, three persons. And so, this is a particular passage that really does do some serious damage with that particular teaching. If this were if, if you really wanted to go there, you'd almost have to erase or downplay this particular section because the three are presented here at the same time and the three are represented as God. We have Jesus and, and he doesn't disappear and go up into heaven and then speak down as the Father, then get back into being Jesus for a moment and says, so Real Eliza, okay, now it's time for the Spirit and come down as the Spirit, and then I gotta do somehow get back and be Jesus again real quick. All switching modes. All three, Jesus being baptized, the Spirit descending, and the Father speaks. All three are present. We have a Father speaking to his Son, his only begotten Son. So here is a bold revelation of the three persons of the one God. One of the boldest in all of Scripture. But most importantly, here we see Jesus being anointed To begin his messianic ministry. This is where the page turns. Boom. This is where everything changes. And in Jesus' life and ministry. One of the things we have to understand as we move forward. Is understand that Jesus fulfills an office and a role. In a specific kind of a way. Now. We've all heard. How many of us have heard the WWJD? My wife has. Has. <laughs> Most of us, right? And it stands for what would, that's right, what would Jesus do? And it's actually a fairly good question to ask as far as it goes. But you have to understand that it, it, what would Jesus do depends also upon his office. There's things that Jesus was, would do that you shouldn't do that you would be wrong to ask the question and then proceed. You know, when Jesus goes about his ministry, he is Messiah. And he speaks, he acts, and he does things that he never did 30 years prior to this point. That's important. As we go through the Gospels, you'll see that it's like just because Jesus does something and says something and speaks, when he speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees the way he does, we shouldn't take lessons about how to speak to people that we don't like. Or we shouldn't say, oh, those people are in authority, and that's what, what would Jesus do? Well, he would tell them, call them a bunch of snakes and put them in their place. So when I looked at my bracelet, WWJD, I looked at the moment and I said, that's what I'm supposed to do. Hold on, stop, stop, wait a second. You're not Messiah. It's not your office or calling. And some people on Facebook would think it was. Because they're going around thinking, what would Jesus do? Well, he would get into a tangle, and he would go after authority figures. Well, there are people who are in authority, and people speak to them in authority. Smack talk. Disrespectful. And it's simply, they could. Say, this would be their argument. What would Jesus do? That's what he would do. I, I've got proof texts for you. Lots of them. Yes. There's a text, but there's also a context. And the context is what surrounds and comes around this particular text. And there's we have to understand that Jesus was anointed as Messiah for a particular ministry in the history of the world to do something as God's only son, the son of David, the king of heaven and earth, the king of all Israel, the one who's speaking to a, these people who think their authorities as the authority. And it's different. And so we have to understand this makes Jesus unique. Set apart from anyone else. There's things that Jesus says and does that you should not say and do. Because it's not your calling. It's not your office. You're not Messiah. And that's helpful. It's important practically to understand that. And we're going to get more of that as we go through because there's certain situations where we're going to find out this is what you don't do. Don't go walking on water, okay? But... I also want us to see something else here. In this particular baptism, it isn't just his anointing, but it's also what Jesus is doing. This is his identification with man under the law. He is submitting under the law. When Jesus submitted himself to baptism under John, he wasn't going to John as a sinner, as I've already mentioned, who needed cleansing like the rest of Israel. In Matthew, this is what he specifically says to John. No, John, do this. Because John's thinking baptism unto repentance I can't. Why would I do this? You should be baptizing me. And what does Jesus tell him? This is in order to fulfill all righteousness. So John goes, okay, let's do it. And he does it. So he was going, what was happening when he says, in order to fulfill all righteousness, he's doing this as a representative of his people, submitting himself under the law. Now, let me give you a little bit of context for saying that. Clearly, numbers 19, specifically is a great section to look at, look at. And also various sections throughout Leviticus have got to be looming in the background here. Give some contextual background, in, in, even when, when he mentioned that statement in Paul's uh, sorry, in John's mind as he's baptizing, clearly what Jesus is doing is fulfilling this. because one of the requirements in the law was that the priest, the sacrifice, and anything that was to be offered up to God was, guess what? It was to be baptized. And you go, go, go through Leviticus, read Numbers 19, go through sections of the Leviticus, and you will see all of the... It won't say the word, though. Here's the thing. What it will say, it will use this word, washings. These, and, these, and there's all kinds of different washings that were necessary. And washings would, in some cases, make somebody clean who was unclean. In other cases, it would, it would separate and consecrate. So those priests who are going into ministry would be, would be baptized. Anything that was used in the temple service or drawing near to God was to be offered up, up to him, was to be consecrated through these washings. And there's, and there's also blood involved as well. But washings are a huge part. Our word, and this is how it works, this is why these were baptisms. Our word baptized, do you know where that comes from? That comes from the Greek word baptizo. So it's basically a transliteration is what happens. Now, in the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew. And Hebrews don't have a word for this, a, a parallel word. They don't have a word "baptizo" at all in their vocabulary, and they use the word "washings" and so, or, or translated "washings." But the Greek Septuagint, if you were to read the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, you will see the word "baptizo" used throughout in its various forms for these words "washings," because that's how the Greeks would refer to washings. Further evidence of this, and just how 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 to understand this parallel is in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8 through 10, it says that the Old Covenant and the temple only dealt with, and here's a quote in verse 10, dealt with food and drink and various washings, it says, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So, what he's saying here is that these were imposed until the time of Reformation. That Old Covenant system that had, you know, the temple and... And all these regulations had these various washings and these drinks, and uh, they're imposed for the body until the time of Reformation. Now, what's interesting is guess what that word in the Greek for washings is? That word is baptizmoi, And that... Why would they translate baptizmoi to washings? Because that's what... all the washings of the Old Testament were in Greek, if you're speaking Greek. But they're not. They're speaking in Hebrew. So they under, they're they helping us in translation. They're saying, okay, these were these are various baptisms that were happening in the Old Covenant. So now, how would we understand that? Because if we said various baptisms, we would throw off all these English-speaking people, and they'd be like, what are you, various baptisms? Uh, baptism just happened in the New Covenant. It showed up with John. Like, what's going on? No, John's still in the Old Covenant, remember, and it's not strange or odd for these people at all. Baptism is a part of life. If you look at the Essenes, and they, the Essenes especially were a group of people who were pietistic, uh, almost like cultish kind of a people, well, yeah, they were cultish, sect of Israel. And those people were psychotic about washings. Speaking Greek, Baptisms. They would get baptized all the time for all kinds of various uncleanness. They had way more rules than even you find in Leviticus for all kinds of things. And they're always washing, always baptizing, always cleaning. And so this is, this is why we have to understand that what, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is actually being washed by the priest... In order for him to fulfill all righteousness, because anything offered up to God be consecrated to him, the priest himself or any of the utensils or anything was to be washed. In Greek, we'd say baptized in order to approach God. So Jesus says, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness, which now means that he's submitting himself under the law. And he says, and do this to me, but you're doing it to me, not in the same way you're doing it to the people. They're doing it to be cleansed from their sins. This is a baptism of repentance. I'm doing it. It It's part of my anointing and my identification with, with, with man and submitting myself under the law in order to fulfill all righteousness. And because Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, he came as one who submitted himself under the law for our sakes. As Galatians 4, 4-5 puts it, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So Jesus submits himself to the ceremonial law, the washing of a priest and sacrifice, who would make atonement for his people as the law required. And this is good for us. This is very good for us. Why is this good for us? Because Jesus is our representative. He does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He fulfills the law perfectly. If you think of the first time, think of the first time a representative of ours was put under a test. And it was an official representative that representative went for us and failed and didn't fail under a strenuous law did he he failed under a law that was pretty simple and basic one law do not eat of this one tree tree of the knowledge of good and evil and how did our representative do as good as we would have done, he failed. So now Jesus is showing up as the second Adam, being baptized as a representative, submitting himself under all the law and fulfilling it perfectly in our place. So unlike Adam, the new Adam submits under a much greater law and fulfills it perfectly, fulfilling all righteousness this is important for us to get our heads around and understand representation, covenantal representation. When you have a head and that head performs something on your behalf, it's as if you did it. We kind of get, we lose representation today a lot, but we get it sometimes. Here's a, a crude analogy that, that has a slight connection, but it helps us to understand in our cultural context what it's like. This year we had the privilege of watching a local team win the Super Bowl did we not our beloved Seahawks won the coveted prize they won but you know what if you're a Seahawks fan and I I think most of us are not everybody is so this analogy you're probably hating everything I'm saying if you're a Seahawks fan you won that's our team no that's my team my team won. And we strut around like, we won. We won, didn't we, right? And we're high five, and we're pumped and we're so excited. I wasn't on the field. I didn't catch a pass. I didn't throw a pass. I did nothing on that field. Nothing. But I won. How did you win? That's my team. So that's my team, so I win. So if that's your team, you won. You won, but you weren't on the field. Didn't have to be. It's my team. It's my team. They represent me. Because how did, and see with sports, this is where it all breaks down. It wasn't any covenantal connection or union, it's simply identify with them. If I put on the hat and wear the jersey and I say to you, that's my team, guess what? It's my team. I don't have to go any through rite of passage. I don't have to, you know, there's not something I have to do. The only time you become suspicious of me is if you say, wait a second, I thought you liked the Denver Broncos. Now I'm suspicious of you. But if, if, you, if, if I'm not suspicious of you at all, and you claim your loyalty ahead of time, I'm, I clearly, I could say, yes, your team won. That's how loose it is. However, it's still representational. But we all get it. We all raise our flags. We all wear our jerseys. And that's how representation works. You don't have to be on the field. You don't have to play in the game. You can have a representative that stands in your steed, and that representative is for you. And it's just as if you did it. It's just as if it was, it was your, your victory, your win. Jesus' victory is our victory. His win is my win. His righteousness, his life is my life. He lives for me. He lives and dies and bleeds for me, for you, if you're identified with him. And this is where we're going to see this last point here. This is very important to connect this all together is that in Jesus' baptism, he consecrated our new covenant baptism that we participate in. And being baptized with water, Jesus inaugurates, as the head of his body, a whole new kind of baptism. Which his people are then going to be baptized into. Now there's a lot here and it's just it's really important to understand but here's here's another way of thinking about it. The baptism of Jesus is what consecrates and forms the basis of our Christian baptism. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 28 This is a different kind of baptism. Listen to the language. We're to go and disciple the nations, baptizing them into what? Into it's not into a baptism of repentance and cleansing which which is still an aspect of it, but baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is Christian baptism. We are now baptized into Jesus. So in our baptism, we are being baptized into Christ. So even though Christians are called to repentance and faith, like John was doing, we are baptized specifically into Christ where our forgiveness and cleansing comes from is in him. John's baptism was a shadow and a type of the baptism to come. Looking forward to who? It was looking forward to Jesus. Do you think it was the water, the Jordan River water, that was actually doing the forgiving of the sins and the cleansing? No, it was a picture, a picture of of a sign and a seal pointing forward as a shadow and a type of the one who would come and would cleanse. The true water... The true one, the true person who's going to wash and cleanse away sin is Jesus. As Calvin put it, he said, Jesus dedicated and sanctified baptism in his own body in order that he might have it in common with us as the foremost bond and union and fellowship which he has with us. Hence, Paul proves that we are children of God from the fact that we put on Christ in baptism. Galatians 3, 26 through 27. Thus, we see that the fulfillment of baptism is in Christ, end quote. That's that's what he said about this particular baptism of Jesus. So in other words, Jesus as the head of the church must pass through the waters of baptism and thus create the passageway into him His body. This is why all the language is about putting on Christ, being baptized into Christ. As many of you have been baptized into him. So the language of our baptism is all language of being baptized into Christ, being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is interesting is that Jesus himself did not baptize with water. His disciples were baptizing, but he doesn't baptize with water. As John's going on to say, Jesus baptized with something different. He has his servants, we as his servants, baptizing. But Jesus himself doesn't baptize with the water. And what we're doing now in our baptizing is we're baptizing into Jesus. However, Jesus, as John put it, he does baptize, but what kind of baptisms he bring? What does he say earlier on? Back up in, in verse... As in verse fifteen through sixteen, he says specifically verse sixteen he says, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will what? He will baptize you with, wa- so not with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. So when did this happen? Jesus, when he baptized, he ascends to the right hand of God, and then because of his sacrifice and what he's done, he is now takes and he pours out the Spirit upon the church. And in, in Acts chapter 2, we have the Spirit descending upon them, and they're being baptized with the Spirit and with fire. There's flames of fire, tongues of fire, which are coming down at the same time. This is when Jesus baptized his church. He baptizes the church with the Spirit and with fire. And this is what John didn't even fully get it. He he says it because he knows it's true. But like some prophets, they don't know how this really works itself out. But in Pentecost, Jesus baptized his church, his body. So what we do... Is we baptize by water into Jesus, Jesus baptizes with the Spirit and fire. And it's different. Baptism has shifted and changed. We still call people to repentance as faith, as John did, but instead his baptism was a looking forward to Jesus, we now fulfillment, we baptize into Jesus, where in his body, the church, is the Spirit that he's baptized with, his body with. So now, As I was saying before, let me make the connection. Jesus is our representative. He submits himself under the law. And the way we identify with our baptism, remember what I said earlier, how the analogy breaks down also with the football analogy? So the Seahawks win, our teams win, we win, right? But there's a breakdown there because how do I identify with them? I simply just kind of raise my flag. I buy a hat. I just say, I'm I'm with them. And you're on the bandwagon. Way you go. You're with them. There's no rite of passage. There's no anything you pass through. There's no really identifying marker other than your your proclamation or confession. But with Jesus, the way you identify with him, the way you united to him, the way you buy the t-shirt, get the hat, buy the flag, is through your baptism. It's through the rite of baptism that we actually Change representatives. We're born in our first, the first Adam. We're baptized into the second Adam. Now, this is what, if you look at the majority of passages throughout the Bible or the New Testament in regard to Christian baptism, almost all of them are in reference to our being baptized into Christ. Because this is what happens, this is what baptism is all about, is saying, I'm on Jesus' team. (laughs) I'm with the winner. I identify with him. Not only that, he's my representative. You didn't live the life. You didn't submit yourself fully under the law. You didn't keep the law. You didn't suffer the penalty for sin. You didn't uh, atone for the sin. You didn't do any of it. Jesus did it all. So how is he yours? You have to identify with him. You have to claim him as your own. You have to say, he is mine. You have to lay hold of him. Well, is there any rite of passage, or should you just go buy a hat, say, I belong to Jesus, and wear it around? No, there's a marker. There's a rite of passage by which you belong to him. You come to him. You say, you're baptized into him. I baptize you into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he is ours. We win. So it should be an encouragement to our souls to see in Jesus' baptism, proof of those three things. His anointing from heaven, the good news that he submitted to and under the law and fulfilled it perfectly, and that he, is, he consecrated for me and, and changed the nature of baptism so that now I'm baptized into him, and now what's his is mine. I belong to him, body and soul. You know what it's like uh, having a concrete, objective rite of passage in a way of identifying with someone like, here it is, is it takes away the ambiguity. It takes away the unclarity. I, I've got to confess, there, I, several years in my life, there was a lot of spiritual unrest, I'll call it. Because I was in a particular context that was always calling for the, for the identity marker here within. And I'm, so I'm looking within to know whether or not you belong to J- Jesus. I was always being called into question in my faith. And my faith became very tenuous. And so it, what ends up happening is that I was always doubting whether or not I belonged to Jesus. You know, all I have to do is have a bad day. <laughs> bad day. And I don't think I'm a Christian. I, I wonder if I really do belong to him. And I'd hear enough people tell me that I should really be wondering and questioning that I was wondering and questioning. And so I lived, and I didn't tell people this, but sometimes I was dying inside, living in fear, living in doubt, wondering, was I really in? Well, then they hear about predestination and elections, like, oh, maybe I'm not elect. Just freaking out. You know, it's like the, it was like the stress of being in a dating relationship. I grew up and I didn't even, uh, you know, didn't understand about that whole thing. And you know, if you've ever grew up in a, especially a non-Christian home that was really clear, wasn't clear about the dating relationships and all that stuff. Those are the worst relationships ever. Do you know why? Because you're always freaked out that it, it, this thing is not secure. At all. It's like, this could be over next week. You're always always defining the relationship. So how are we? You know, where are we at? Where's this at? And and then who are you talking to? You know, you're always freaked out because it's like, you know that you have no claim. And that relationship is very tenuous. And what's amazing is you get married and you covenant together and you have a ceremony and the rite of passage and you unite. And it brings incredible security to the relationship. It's like, ah, huh. yes, this is how relationships should be. They should be secure. In the same way, the baptism is supposed to be like that. It's our rite of passage. We can say, no, I belong to Jesus, body and soul. How do you know that? I was baptized. So when I came to understand that, it took away all that fear. It took away that confusion. It took away the introspection of constantly analyzing every motive and realizing, oh, that was a bad motive. Oh, you believe that thought I had? I'm probably not a Christian. I had that thought in my mind. It's like, ah. You know, living constantly in fear of my relationship with him. But when i come to understand that, no, he's given me something very real and objective, and I can say, no, I belong to him. Body and soul, he's mine. The peace it brought to the relationship. The security it brought to the relationship. Now, of course, you're going to have people who say, well, this kind of sounds like, you know, baptized in... I could see this producing all kinds of complacency and people who don 't care and just go say they live like hell and they belong to Jesus. you know that 's like saying that uh, somebody can go on and commit adultery, and it doesn 't affect the relationship, that somebody can go on and, uh, and, and go, go away from their spouse and do whatever they want, live however they want, and it won 't affect it at all. No, it actually becomes grounds for divorce. And and one of the ways that we have to understand baptism is not just covenantal union that defines a relationship, but it's obligation. It's it's a lot like marriage. You can't go off and commit adultery and think that the marriage is fine. It's not. So anybody who's baptized thinking the marriage is fine, the relationship with Jesus is fine, just because I'm baptized and they're off living how they want, they are deluded and deceived. That baptism comes with with a, with a covenantal obligations to repent and to believe and to stay loyal and faithful to that particular person. You can't go off and depart from them and go after others. You know. You know. At the end of the day, many Christians who've been baptized are going to realize if they thought that there's going to be the great divorce in the end. And if so, if they use their baptism like that. They used it wrongly. It should call them back to repentance, to loyalty, to faithfulness, to call them to believe and lay lay hold on to Jesus, because He's yours and you're His and you belong to Him. He bought you. So that's using baptism properly with somebody who's baptized and deceiving themselves and living like a child of the devil and thinking because they're baptized, they're in. No, I'm sorry, it'll be worse for you in the end. Then you've never known. You're baptized. You understand. You belong to Him. He's yours. You've identified with Him. You're you're covenanted together with Him. Repent, therefore. That's how. So the baptism, on the one hand, should it's what we could smack somebody with who's who's being foolish about it. On the other hand, it's what you can comfort somebody with who struggles. Like I was struggling struggling because they're too darn introspective and always analyzing the relationship and wondering where it's at. It should bring great comfort. So when we see Jesus' baptism, rejoice because here is your anointed representative who's going to bout as we walk this journey through, live his life for you. He is yours. And how do you know that? He was first initially baptized, changing the nature of baptism, consecrating it, and you're now baptized into him. He gives you something concrete to hold on to. He is mine. And take that to the bank. Amen. Father, thank you so much. So much for the baptism that speaks to us and helps us to understand our relationship to you and what, it, what happened in the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ how you anointed him, how he submitted under the law to fulfill all righteousness and there consecrated for us the Christian baptism by which we're united to him. What a beautiful, beautiful thing it is. We praise you for it. Amen.